Hey everybody, thank you Marcus for that prayer. Glad to see you here today. Uh, I want to announce a couple of things real quickly before I go any further. In two weeks we're going to have a baptism. Uh, so if you have not been baptized by immersion and you would like to be, we would love to do that in two weeks. Uh, this will be primarily for adults. We've got a couple of kiddos that didn't get baptized uh, when life changed here a while back. So we're going to get them baptized here in two weeks. So uh, Jody won't be offering a class. So if you're 12 or older and you'd like to be baptized, just get a hold of the office this week and we can make that happen. That'll be in two weeks. And also the end of summer celebration for the students. It's going to be Wednesday night at 6 p.m., we usually have hot dogs and inflatables. It'll be a really fun night for the kids. This is not a back-to-school celebration. This is an end-of-summer celebration. Be very clear about that. So, I hope you can make it to, the, to uh, uh, Wednesday night at, at 6 p.m. So, I can, I can imagine what the history books may say. They may say something like this. There was a global pandemic caused by a virus. The number of infected people grew daily. Officials recommended frequent hand washing and quarantining of the sick. Things got very dramatic there for a moment, didn't they? <laughs> Whoa, that was heavy. <laughs> Several cities went so far as to ban public worship services and other public gatherings. In the end, the pandemic killed 50 million people, including 675,000 Americans. Now, interestingly, this is what the history books say, because the pandemic I'm describing is not the pandemic going on right now, but it was the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. As a matter of fact, in 1918, they recognized that the churches needed to close. A, a friend of mine, Kevin Reiser, sent me... Uh, a newspaper article from that day in November when the newspapers printed out all of the sermons in the newspaper under the headline, Some Sermons That Would Have Been Delivered in Sheridan's Churches Tomorrow If They Had Not Been Closed on Account of the Influenza Pandemic. That was on September, Nove uh, I'm sorry, Saturday, November 9th in 1918. Uh, during the time of the Spanish flu that ransacked the world, killed more people than World War I. There's a history professor at Bethel University that recently wrote about how churches responded to the Spanish flu at that time. There were a number of different pastors that they captured their stories, and there was an interim pastor, for example, uh, in San Francisco that preached that many Christians had caused the pandemic because of being cowardly and worldly, and only repentance of these sins would stop the spread of the virus. Some pastors were creative and led outdoor services, encouraged home worship, and even reading sermons published in newspapers. Then at the other end of the spectrum, there was another uh, church leader that wrote that the pandemic should convince, in, in quotes, intelligent Christians to trust science rather than seeking to tempt God to perform a miracle in preservation of our health. Then there were some pastors who refused to close their doors, held services in protest, and in at least one city, a pastor was arrested for refusing to cancel services. The Daily Telegram of Worcester, Massachusetts reported on how Christians were responding. 
And women from three local churches there in Worcester, Massachusetts, were taking care of epidemic orphans. They not only gave food and clothing, but supplied them with uh, plenty of helpful recreation and some systematized instruction, too. Leave it to the women to step in and do the most level-headed things. So in this time of national crisis, we're reminded, you know, we are not the first churches to encounter a sickness, a worldwide sickness. And just as history is judged typically in retrospect, how we respond to our current crisis will give witness to our faith and will also be evaluated by the future generations. So here we are. And the question comes to us in these times and in our generation, when should the church not assemble? When should the church not assemble? And what is the decision grid in making that kind of a decision? The text I want to look at today, we'll start in Romans chapter 13. We'll move on from Romans 13 and look at some other situations in the scriptures as well. But we're going to start out with Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. The authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. You may be seated. So we're continuing on this series that we're calling Nothing New. Even though in the news there's a lot going on, if you take a deeper look, you'll discover that it is truly nothing new. I'm borrowing that phrase from the writer of Ecclesiastes who said that there's nothing new under the sun. It's happened before. And the circumstances we're in right now, guess what? They've happened before. This isn't something new, as you saw from the newspaper headline that I read just a few moments ago. This morning, we're going to continue looking at this pandemic situation. Last week, we took a look at masks and the need to make a decision according to your conscience uh, and not in a way that would cause disunity among members of the body of Christ. And this morning, we're going to take a deeper look about responding to these, these government orders. How should the church respond when we get these uh, orders that come down from the magistrates and the governors and the officials? And I want to approach the topic this way. First of all, talk about why must everyone submit to the authorities? We've got a command as well as some reasons in Romans chapter 13, the section that we just looked at. 
But then also, well, when is civil disobedience commended in the Bible? Because at times, people didn't obey what the governor said. And then finally, well, how should First Baptist respond to government orders? And I'm going to walk through uh, the decision grid and how you make a decision like this and how we do it here at First Baptist. So let's start out with that first question. Why must everyone submit to the authorities? So, um, you know, I, let's start with the passage we just read. And it makes this very clear command. We see it there at the beginning. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, when you see that, and I think when we read Romans chapter 13, you're almost hoping that who's ever reading is just going to get to the end. Because you want to play this, what I call a yeah, but game with Romans chapter 13. It's like, obey the governing authorities. Yeah, 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 yeah. But when do we not obey the governing authorities? It's like when you hear somebody talking, you say, yeah, 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 I get it, but. Well, hold on, okay? Just, just hold on for a minute before you give in to that tendency that I, I do it too. There's a command here. Now, just a little background. So, again, the command, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Well, what were the authorities like during the time of Rome, whenever this letter was written? Because the guy in charge, the, the Caesar to whom the, the Romans would have been most familiar with was a guy by the name of Nero. And listen to how Nero treated Christians. Some were condemned to be dressed in animal skins and torn apart by dogs, while others were burned to death in nighttime pyres that provided light for the emperor's garden parties. So just so we're all on the same page, this is the kind of leader that we're talking about whenever Paul wrote Romans chapter 13. Now our first question that I want to go to is, well, why must everyone submit to the authorities? I mean, when you hear about a guy like this, it's like, you know, what in the world? And then the, the scriptures list these, these reasons. And the first one is because authorities are appointed by God. Authorities are appointed by God. Look at the end of verse 1. It says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And then again in verse 4, uh, For he is God's servant for your good. So from the, the very lowest level bureaucrat all the way up to the chain to the emperor himself, these were leaders whom God had set in place. And this is stated in other parts of the, the Bible as well uh, and from other offers. Peter uh, is going to echo the same sentiments that Paul is saying here. And then in the Old Testament, in Daniel 4, 17, speaking of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Uh, this is what Daniel says to the king. This message came from angelic sources. This is Daniel speaking to the king. This announcement is by the decree of the sentinels. This decision is by the pronouncement of the holy ones so that those who are alive may understand that the Most High has authority over human kingdoms. Even when things may appear to be spinning out of control, when leadership goes wacky, remember this verse, and he bestows them on whomever he wishes he is, and this is Daniel talking to the king. He establishes over them even the lowliest of human beings. 
King Nebuchadnezzar? Yes! Daniel's not trying to put lipstick on a pig here. Even these lowliest, these most base of people, God will set over nations. That's not a stretch of the imagination, I don't think. Uh, so, God puts these leaders in their place. He appoints them. And then the second reason uh, to obey and submit to the authorities is that the disobedient are judged. Those who disobey these authorities are judged. We see this in verses 2 and 4. Uh, verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Uh, then again, in verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, there's an understanding here in this passage that leadership will be in the business of protecting you and your property. Now, for one of them think, well, I can call the police, and they show up, and they're there to help us and protect us. So Paul recognizes that it is the job of God's appointed leaders to punish those who act outside the law. Even if they have no relationship with God whatsoever, they're still doing the work of God in ideally protecting us and our property. Now, I don't think it's any secret that there are authorities who do not walk with the Lord. As a matter of fact, I believe there are some authorities in our world who are under the very control of Satan himself. But ultimately, even these worst of leaders serve God's ultimate purposes. So the third reason is authorities serve God's purposes. We see this particularly in the book of Daniel. Daniel was living in a time when the Jews had been displaced from their homeland. The uh, Babylonians had come in and they ransacked Jerusalem. They took the Jews back to Babylon to live in exile. They were to seek the good of that city. Daniel became a confidant of King Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel was also thrown into a lion's den. His friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were also thrown into a fiery furnace for not worshiping a false god. But through all that, God changes Nebuchadnezzar. And I love the way one commentator puts it. Political officials are servants of God. Unconsciously, they serve God's purposes in the world. You know that even Satan himself is unwittingly, un perhaps unconsciously, unknowingly, it's hard to be 100% uh, certain in that, is serving the purposes of God. They have the right under God to punish wrongdoers. As Paul puts it, the authorities do not bear the sword for nothing. So this is radical Christianity, but it's not unprecedented that Christians have lived in a subjective, submissive sort of way under tyrannical, despotic, Satan-controlled men. As a matter of fact, there's a, a letter I found that was written by Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr, who was... Uh, persecuted and died for his faith, wrote a letter to the emperor of his time. Uh, and the letter said this, Everywhere we Christians, more readily than all men, endeavor to pay those appointed by you the taxes both ordinary and extraordinary. 
as we have been taught by Jesus, whence to God alone we render worship, but in other things we gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men, and praying that with your kingly power you be found to possess also sound judgment. Now those verses we read are very strong verses, and as we read those, it I think at first glance you say, well, there is no room for any sort of dis disagreement with governing authorities. However, you find that Paul himself didn't always submit to the authorities. Most of the disciples at some time disobeyed, so there are these times when civil disobedience is commended in the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, I'm going to talk about four of those times that we find in the, in the, in the Bible. Um, first of all, is when the government instructs to engage in false worship. Um, and we see this in Daniel chapter 3. I mentioned this previously, that Daniel's th three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were commanded to bow down to a, a false idol by King Nebuchadnezzar. And they responded this way. This is Daniel 3, 17 and 18. They said, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, they, they, have met, they, they may have said that with their knees knocking together. They may have said that with their teeth chattering. However, they said it. And they were thrown in a fiery furnace. And... God chose to deliver them. It does not always work that way. So, first of all, it's, uh, we, we disobey when we're instructed to engage in false worship. And then secondly, when we're instructed not to pray. If we're instructed not to pray. And again, we go back to the book of Daniel. And we see this in Daniel chapter 6. At that time, Nebuchadnezzar had died. And now there was a new king, King Darius, in charge of Babylon. And some of his... Uh, his, they called him satraps, those in charge in Babylon under the king, came to him and said, King, issue a decree that for 30 days no one should pray to anyone but you. No God should be prayed to. They were hoping to catch Daniel in a trap. They frankly didn't like the guy. They intentionally went into Daniel's room. They knew he'd be praying, saw him praying, grabbed him, brought him before the king. The king actually was hesitant to do this, but the decree had already gone out. And this is how Daniel ends up in a lion's den. Now, by God's grace, he shut the mouths of the lions. He walked out the next day. Then the king took all those people that had told him about Daniel and threw them in the lion's den along with their families. They didn't make it out. But Daniel did not cease to pray. As a matter of fact, we're commanded to pray without ceasing. So we continue to pray. Ah. Uh, regardless of what the government may say. Uh, and then thirdly, um, when the government instructs to participate in genocide, when the government instructs us to participate in genocide, we see this in Exodus chapter 1. Uh, this is Exodus chapter 1, verse 21. Let me just tell you what's going on in Exodus 1. The Pharaoh had become very concerned about all those Jews that were living in Egypt in the time. So he commanded the midwives that whenever they would go, these Egyptian midwives would go help these Hebrew women give birth. They were to kill the baby boys. 
And they got together and they said, well, we're, we're not doing that. Then it said in verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So God blessed these women for not participating in this genocide. So yes, when we have brave people like Corey Ten Boom, who hide Jews during the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, when we have brave men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said, I can't just stand by while all these innocent people, all these men, women, and children are dying. Yeah, we, we, we don't do that. We stand up to that. And then fourth, when instructed not to share the gospel. When instructed not to share the gospel. Um, we see this in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, God had healed someone through them, and the people saw him healed, and the, the Jews that were part of this council in Jerusalem, they got very nervous about it. They realized these people had, these, these men had sway and influence. So then they said, these, these Jews, the Jerusalem council, uh, they, they called them and charged them, Peter and John, uh, charged them not to speak or teach at all the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So we do have these moments in the Bible where people are commended for civil disobedience, for not obeying the governor and those that are in charge. And let me make a couple of observations about this, this, this disobedience. One, it was not for self-preservation. They weren't trying to save their own hides. They were doing this knowing that this could probably be their death if God chose not to deliver them. And then second, it wasn't because of an anti-authoritarian sort of attitude. Uh, they weren't trying to rebel with this attitude of, well, you're not going to tell us what to do. It was always about exalting God. Now, if our present government were telling churches uh, not to do these things, it'd be easy. You know, if they came and said, well, First Baptist, uh, you're not going to share the gospel anymore. Like, well, yeah, we are. You're going to worship false gods. Well, no, we're not. We're not going to be participating in genocide against innocent kids. We're not going to do those things. But that's not really what's happened. Uh, and that's not what's come our way. And how should we respond if those orders were to come back that we were to close down our church? Now, I'll say at the outset, I'm thankful that I don't single-handedly make these decisions. Uh, we have a group of elders that comes together, and we sit down around a table, and we discuss, you know, sometimes loudly, what are we going to do with this? How do we go about making a decision like this? And frankly, even when the last set of orders came around, it was not an easy decision to make. Uh, I also meet with a group of pastors on Wednesday morning called Pastors United in Christ, and we were also able to talk through these things. Well, and we all pretty much came to agreement based on the last set of orders that we should, for a time, close our doors based on what they were saying could happen. And for the most part, we've all been on, on the same page in regard to this, these, uh, that last round of closures. But moving forward, there's three considerations. Basically, I want to bring you into the decision-making grid of, of what we need to do uh, as leaders and elders 
uh, in regard to determining if we should or should not close the church and at least close the building so the services weren't happening here. And first, as I was thinking through this, there's, there's three main guiding commands, and there's others, uh, but three main guiding commands that uh, help us through this decision-making process. First of all, to love God and your neighbor. I mean, we don't want to go spreading a disease that could kill people, right? Uh, and then secondly, submitting to the government. There's a clear command in Romans 13, 1, to submit to the government. And then third, also to not neglect meeting together. That comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. So we hold, we hold on to all three. And at times, these seem to be, in the world we're living in right now, to be in tension with one another. So that leads me to a second consideration, is to look to history. Well, what's happened in the past when churches have faced similar kinds of situations? What has been done in the past? As I mentioned before, there was a precedent for, uh, for closing. Um, the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918, uh, churches at Sheridan did close their doors to prevent more death. At that time, uh, they had closed from October 1918 to January of 1919. 780 people in Wyoming died as a result of Spanish flu. As to date, according to the wyo.gov website, 30 people have died from coronavirus in Wyoming. Uh, so the church has closed before. And I want to introduce you to a guy named Richard Baxter. You may have ever heard of Richard, ba Richard Baxter. Okay, some of you have. He's a Puritan theologian. So back in the 1600s, he saw a moment like this coming. And it had happened in the past with, with other plagues. Uh, but he decided he was going to write a book. He called it Ethics and Culture and how a church was to deal with a situation like what we're facing right now. So in that book, question 109, may we omit church assemblies on the Lord's Day if the magistrate forbid them? And this was the answer he came up with. If the magistrate, for a greater good, as the common safety, forbid church assemblies in a time of pestilence, assault of enemies, or fire, or the like necessity, it is the duty to obey him. However, he also qualified this to say it is one thing to omit them for a time and another to do it ordinarily. So there's this historic precedent to, for a time, in his view, to close the doors of a church if it will provide for the greater good and the common safety. But still, churches have to make decisions. Well, how long? Well, what if there's no substantial evidence of death and sickness occurring in your area? What if churches are unfairly being singled out? And by the way, yes, I believe there is a conspiracy to close churches. To keep people from meeting. Now, I'll say I don't believe it's the Illuminati. I don't believe it's a political party. I don't frankly know that they're smart enough to pull that off. But Satan is always trying to close the doors of the church. And our enemy is not flesh and blood. It's this evil spiritual being we have to deal with. And yes, he's going to use people to accomplish his purposes. So is there a conspiracy to close the doors? You bet there is. I believe Satan is at the very root of it. 
Recently, uh, churches in L.A. County were told that they could no longer meet. They were no longer going to be allowed to get together and sing. They were no longer going to be allowed to hold uh, services indoors. And many of you probably read the article about John MacArthur and his church. And they decided they were not going to uh, abide by that uh, order. And I respect John MacArthur for that. I mean, he did this not knowing what the outcome would be. Praise God, a judge came forward and said, the law is on your side, church. You can go ahead and meet. There's another church not far from that church as well called Calvary Westlake. The pastor of that church is a man that I know. He pastored the church that I was at previously before I came to Wyoming, and they elected to continue meeting outdoors. I happen to believe that both of those men love God. Both of those men love their congregations. And both of them are seeking to make the best decision they can to exalt God. Which leads me to this third consideration, is to trust God's process. To trust God's process. That last time those orders came through, we, I typed up a recommendation. And then I sat down with the elders and the staff uh, we got back in the, I'm motioning this way because we sat in the youth room, we sat around a big table, and we came with several different ideas and several different opinions and lots of recommendations, including do we really want to go through with what they're asking us to do? And you know, by the grace of God, we all walked out of that room with a plan in our hands that we were all on the same page with. You see, I trust God, I trust the Holy Spirit to meet us in moments like this, but we have to make these kinds of decisions. I believe He comes through. I believe He meets us in this place. And I've got a confidence going forward, no matter what comes down the pike, that I can sit down in the same way that John MacArthur sat down with his elders in the same way that uh, Pastor Sean Thornton sat down with his group of elders at Calvary Westlake and come to a decision on the pathway that needs to go forward. I'm confident that we can do that and that we can make that plan. Now, uh, things haven't gone as badly as first projected. We've had very few cases here in, in Sheridan. Uh, and, and frankly, I don't know if we're going to get any more uh, orders or not. But I do believe we can sit down with the leadership and that we can figure this out. Keeping in mind that we want to love our neighbors uh, and obey the government and not neglect meeting together. So that's what I'd like you to walk away with, is that we want to move forward together through this pandemic by, pandemic by considering God's commands, those three that, that I mentioned, looking to history. I believe that it's wise to look at spirit-filled men and how they handled things in the past. And then finally, trusting God's process. I want to close with a prayer that was written by Clement of Rome. Many people believe that Clement was serving side by side with Paul uh, in, in the church in Rome. And in all likelihood, he was thinking of severe persecution that Christians felt from Nero and also Emperor Domitian. Uh, and in light of all that persecution, in, in light of being subject to some of the most cruel men who'd ever walked the face of the earth, he prayed the following prayer. And I'd actually like for us to be this, for this to be our prayer today. So if you would, please with me, bow your head and, and close your eyes. 
And we're going to pray this prayer to God and for each other. Almighty God, guide our steps to walk in holiness and righteousness and singleness of heart and to do those things that are good and acceptable in your sight and in the sight of our rulers. Lord, cause your face to shine upon us and give us peace for our good that we may be sheltered by your mighty hand and delivered from every sin by your outstretched arm. Deliver us from those who hate us wrongfully. Give unity and peace to us and to all who dwell on earth, as you did to our fathers when they called you on you in faith and truth with holiness, while we render obedience to your almighty and most excellent name to our earthly rulers and governors. You, our Lord and Master, have given us, rather have given them the power of sovereignty through your excellent and unspeakable might, that we, knowing the glory and honor which you have given them, may submit ourselves to them, and nothing restraining your will. Grant them, therefore, O Lord, health, peace, friendship, and stability, that they may without failure administer the government which you have committed to them. For you, Heavenly Master, King of the ages, do you give to the sons of men glory and honor and power over all things that are in the earth? Do you, O Lord, direct their counsel according to what is good and acceptable in your sight, that they, administering in peace and gentleness with godliness the power which you have committed to them, may obtain your favor? And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.